Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, we focus on the holidays in Minnesota. MNN's Tasha Radel takes us on a sleigh ride down memory lane. I have to admit, it's my favorite time of the year. For me, Christmas truly is about spending time with my family and friends and carrying out the family traditions. This includes tracking Santa's sleigh on Christmas Eve. Back when I was a kid in Montevideo, my sisters and I would be glued to KCCO Channel 7 out of Alexandria, watching Santa's moves on the radar in anticipation of when he would get to our house. Another true sign of a radial Christmas is lutefisk on Christmas Eve. I have to admit this is the worst smelling stuff out there, but oh, so good with melted butter and salt. My dad always used to say, Tasha, you're eating Santa's blubber, and my grandma Foost would give my dad the stare of death. And then on Christmas Day, we'd head to my grandma Shirley's house. We'd eat a big meal, including her homemade dressing and gravy. After dinner, well, the card playing started, Buck Euchre. Oh, what I would do again to be a little kid and do those Christmases all over again. Recently, I reached out to some of my colleagues around the state and asked them to share some of their Christmas memories. Joining me now is J.P. Cola, News Director at Lakeland Broadcasting in Wilmer. Well, I'm from a large family. I'm one of six kids. And every Christmas, you know, we'd have our Christmas gathering at my parents' house. And uh, my Aunt Margaret would be there, too. And she uh, was single, never had any kids, so she kind of treated us like a surrogate family. She would always be the one to buy us the practical stuff, the clothes and stuff like that. So when we'd be opening our gifts, we would always dread being the one to open the package of underwear because my sister's husband, Larry, who's from the South, would always somehow see when you open the underwear, he'd grab the underwear, rip it out of the package, and put it over your head like a mask, yelling, John's got underwear, or Bob or Gary or whoever. So we'd always dread opening that package that might contain underwear. And that went on for years and years. And uh, who knows, it might still be going on wherever uh, Larry and Barb are celebrating Christmas nowadays. But that may not be, you know, the most heartwarming of traditions, but it's something that always happened around uh, our house at the, the Colas on uh, Christmas morning. You know, being in the radio business, and uh, I know that you've been in it too, uh, I remember one Christmas, uh, my first Christmas away from home working in Iowa, freezing cold, a lot of snow, and saved up our money and got a few days off and driving back up to the Twin Cities for Christmas in this lousy 1974 Ford van that wasn't running. I remember taking off the engine cover and driving with my hand inside the engine compartment holding the uh, choke on the carburetor open while we drove uh, half the way to the Twin Cities and having my arm almost froze off. But that's how bad we wanted to make it home for Christmas. Annette Weston is news director at KTOE in Mankato. I think this time of year, especially for me, um, is 
all about family and just by necessity kind of being far away from some of them. I guess my newest tradition is to do a lot of driving around the holidays because my family's mostly in southwest Michigan, but um, a little bit in North Carolina, and there's a lot of travel involved in that. But the holidays, and especially Christmas, have been so important to us, and it's been unusual for about the last five years to not always be together for all of them. Jim Maurice is news director at Town Square Media in St. Cloud. At the time, when you're when you're living it, you don't really think of it as traditions, but we certainly did the same exact Christmas every single year when I was growing up as a kid. We'd always go to my grandma, uh, Hazel's house, uh, living in Danube, uh, and she would uh, have the Christmas Eve. My mom was a, was an only child, so it was just my immediate family that was there with my grandma. And we'd do the same thing every year. You know, we'd have to do the, uh, the whole sit-down meal, the full meal. Uh, we'd go to the church in Danube, the Lutheran church there. We'd have to do that. I think it was like a 7 o'clock service. So we couldn't open up the presents until we came back from the church service. So as a child, it was a painful, long wait. You have to get past all of that before you could finally open up the presents. So we'd do that, you know, late on Christmas Eve. We'd spend the night. We'd stay overnight at my grandma's house, which was always a fun thing. And then the next day... On Christmas Day, we would go to my other side, my, my grandparents on my dad's side, which also lived in Daniels. So we just have to go across town there, and we'd spend Christmas Day with them. And last but not least, Bonnie Amistadi, a well-known personality at KFGO Radio in Fargo-Moorhead. Boy, traditions have changed over the years as I've gotten older and moved far away from my hometown on the Iron Range, originally a Chisholm, Minnesota native. Some of my best memories would be from when I was a kid. We would always get together with all of our relatives and extended relatives. It was the aunts and the uncles and the great aunts and the great uncles and grandmas, grandpas, and a lot of food, a lot of card playing. I remember when we were little, my dad would always flood our front yard and make a big skating rink out of it, and then... You know, after the celebration was done, as kids usually would go out on the front lawn and skate and put on a show for all the relatives to watch. And then as I got older, we don't get home as often now that I live in Moorhead, about four hours away from my hometown, and the roads are kind of dicey at Christmas season. So we started our own tradition with me and my husband and our three kids who are growing now, but when they were a little bit younger... I would always uh, make some hot apple cider and hot chocolate, and then I would take them out both sledding and skating on Christmas Eve, and then we would drive around looking at the Christmas lights, and, and that was a fun tradition as well. The only other cool thing was when we were kids growing up, too, my mom is actually Ukrainian and immigrated to the United States when she was a teenager, and so her and my grandma would always speak in Ukrainian, and my mom would do the Mass at our Ukrainian Catholic Church in Chisholm. And so we would go to Midnight Mass. My mom would sing the Mass in Ukrainian. We really didn't know what she was singing, but you could follow along if they were Christmas songs so you know what they were. But after Mass, then we would go home, and we got to open one present, and then we had to wait until Christmas morning, until Santa came to open the rest of our presents. Thanks again to all my radio friends. It is the most wonderful time of year. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The ever-present question this time of year, what do you get for the person who has everything? It turns out a niche market may have the answer for the Minnesotan on your list. J.W. Cox has the story of a Minnesota woodworker who blends practicality with craftsmanship. Scott, Vern's Wood Goods screams Minnesota charm. From the fine woodcrafted products available themselves to the Dorothy's Pie recipe. It's also included on the company's website, Dorothy, being the wife of owner-craftsman Vern Mayer himself. The unique nature of the homegrown business carries right over to Vern's story, told through the eyes of his son, Paul. Well, it's something that about maybe nine years ago now, so he was at that time 75 and um, finally retired and uh, got bored right away, wanted to do something. And so, um, but he's, uh, he had some problems with his knees and stuff, so he wasn't able to stand all day and work retail and so forth. So I, I kind of pitched the idea. I've been into woodworking for about 20 years, and I pitched to him the idea of, you know, him getting involved, and I uh, could teach him how to make some things, and I'd set up a website and basically create a little business with him and for him uh, and give him something to do. And so he did that, and that's exactly what we did. I taught him some basics about woodworking. He gave him access to my shop. And as I upgraded tools, I sent him uh, over to his place, and we set him up in his garage. So he had a little shop set up there as well. And, um, yeah, and so we've been doing that uh, kind of in varying degrees of um, intensity over the last uh, decade. And Paul, what types of products did your father first begin to produce? Predominantly simple uh, wood products. Um, uh, a lot of them were kind of in the theme of, um, you know, kitchen or food prep, you know, cutting boards, serving trays, um, uh, bottle openers, spatulas, by pie servers, that sort of thing. A couple of variations on that, um, shoehorns and uh, probably a couple other little trinkety kind of things, but I'd say, you know, probably half of his business over the years pretty consistently has been cutting boards and then, you know, a, a serving tray here and there. And then there were, you know, kind of themes over the years of what would be hot in any, you know, given year. Um, you know, one year he sold, um, you know, his his spatulas and pie servers, Probably, you know, that that was a, a big thing. One year it was kind of all about these long-handled cutting board or uh, shoehorns for people that uh, had bad backs and uh, wanted the, this super long-handled shoehorn to help uh, get their shoes on and off. It is holiday shopping season. How big of an impact did holiday shopping have on your dad's business each year? Every year, pretty consistently, I would say... Mm, 80%, if not 90% of the business was done in November and December. What do you think draws people to giving the gift of something that's handmade, wooden, like that? Yeah, it's it's special. It's differentiated. There's a story behind it. I think a lot of the appeal was, um, you know, this, this passionate 80-plus-year-old guy um, making this stuff with his hands and uh, just a you know, it was, a, it was a really good story, and I think people felt connected to uh, to the work kind of through his story in a lot of in a lot of cases. Do you think your your dad is unique in the state of Minnesota when it comes to the type of people that are creating some of these things? Like you said, that have a personal story. Yeah. Do you think your dad's unique in that, or have you run across other people across the state? 
I think it's I think he's unique in terms of the the um, of him picking it up that late in life. I think that aspect is unique. His his type of business, you know, the products that he sells is pretty common. Uh, you know, not only in Minnesota but nationally, I would say it's it's pretty common. You know, Etsy and um, places like that are filled with people selling. You know, cutting boards a very common thing, and a lot of a lot of his products are are you know you'll find pretty consistently on sites. I think what is unique about him is uh, is the the background coming into it with no no background whatsoever. I think the interesting story as well is you know not only myself you know, being probably the most heavily involved in the family. But, you know, my mom certainly, um, you know, being the shipping department and packaging and and um, my brothers being, you know, involved in helping promote and sell the products. My sister kind of helping him figure out the finance side. She has an accounting background. And um, so it was definitely, uh, you know, a, a family business in every sense of that word. What do you think it is that draws people to this type of retirement mode that your dad found? It's just something to do with these long winters and kind of driving people indoors and looking for indoor type of activities. Uh, and in terms of, you know, you know, people getting involved later, you know, I think that his, he's probably an extreme case where he started so late. But um, there are certainly a lot of cases where people, you know, dabble in woodworking for, you know, their, you know, good portions of their adult life and they, you know, approach retirement and they think, okay, this is a way for me to make a little bit of money in retirement and to kind of, if nothing else, pay for my hobby. And I think you'll hear that from a lot of people as they go through this kind of thought process around approaching retirement. It's just, I don't want to dip into my savings. If I can find an activity that I enjoy that can fill, you know, large number of hours, bringing you know, me joy and having fun, and it doesn't drain my savings, that's a really good model. Mayer says his dad has scaled back his production a bit, but they're still innovating some new products, including a wooden box that serves as an amplifier for your cell phone. A moderate amenity with that touch of Minnesota nature. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, JW. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A lot of people get nostalgic at Christmas and New Year's, and MN's Bill Werner is asking you to forgive him for his own particular trip down memory lane with a few twists and turns. Every year when this time rolls around, I start thinking about how downtown Minneapolis used to be when I was a kid. Downtown was a hodgepodge of small shops, medium-sized establishments, and huge department stores. The three biggest ones lined up one right after another along Nicollet Avenue. It wasn't a mall then. And there were, I suppose, hundreds of restaurants. For some reason, the one that has stuck in my mind is the TikTok Diner, which had one facade on 7th Street and another on Hennepin Avenue an L-shaped building where you could grab a hamburger and fries while you were taking a shortcut. There were drug stores, arcades, variety shops, surplus stores, outlets, all mixed in with doctor's offices, dentists, and the Great Northern Market on Hennepin Avenue's what later became known as Block E, where you could buy everything from honest-to-God rye bread to, I suppose at some point in the past, even a live chicken. 
There was a hardware store, too, where my dad and I bought nails and hammers, screws and screwdrivers, and electrical wiring boxes. The bars I was too young to enter, and I couldn't even conceive of the purpose of less reputable establishments on the upper floors of some of the worn-out old buildings. Hotels they were, the nickel at a pile of brick blocks on the fringe of the old gateway, what used to be Skid Row and was then being leveled, just about the time I was old enough to sort of understand what was going on. And then there were the monolithic Lemington and the sprawling Curtis Hotels at the other end of downtown. And right in the center, the Radisson and the Dykeman, an interesting name out of Minneapolis history. Those were the reputable places. Then there were the lodging houses, the likes of Hotel Andrews, the last resort after the old cage hotels came down, where rooms were let by the week or the month, and where the old men went out for a morning stroll not to a breakfast counter, but to the local tavern. All this was the everyday stuff. But at Christmas, a reasonably behaved child could enjoy a chaperoned meal a dozen floors up at the very top of Dayton's, the biggest of the big department stores and then descend to the 8th floor auditorium for an entreaty to and a quick photo with Santa. And finally, the fabulous Christmas windows along the full block of Nicollet Avenue. The ones I remember best were fully animated scenes from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. Everything in motion, tin soldiers, wooden toys, girls and boys, on both sides of the glass. The reds, greens, blues, and yellows that seemed to bleed into the snow on the sidewalk. Window after window, all the way down that magical block of Nicollet. Then peek around the corner, and there were even two or three more windows down 8th Street. One's imagination would run wild as buses and trucks and cars whizzed by and bundled shoppers carried away packages to squirrel under the Christmas tree. You get the idea. That mix of magic and street grit that was once downtown Minneapolis has much faded over the years, beginning in the early 1960s with what was termed urban renewal, the most ambitious project in the nation at the time, with one prominent leader advocating there was a lot of money to be made rebuilding this machine, which is our downtown. And so blank facades and concrete plazas replaced wrinkled old buildings and streets. And for what could be brutal Minnesota winters, an excellent idea emerged. Skyways, which slowly transformed downtown into an interconnected unit, one floor above the street level. The privileged went there. Everyone else stayed below. The malls came. And downtown became sort of, as some had envisioned, a specialized machine. Something that was happening everywhere now. Eventually, even the Dayton's building closed its doors, 
As Eric Dayton, great-great-grandson of the founder of the department store chain that spawned Target, lamented the loss of the hustle and bustle of the streets of old downtown Minneapolis. But that grand structure at 7th and Nicollet did not sit empty for long. We really want to embrace Nicollet Mall and help reactivate that, as well as the Skyways, because those are two great amenities to this project. Tricia Pitchford is with a firm that's assisting a New York development company with what's dubbed the Dayton's Project. By opening up the floor plates on Skyway, uh, when you're walking through those Skyways, you'll be able to see down into the lower level uh, food hall, and uh, it'll just be really visually appealing and exciting to see all the activity and energy in the project. We'll have not just visual circulation, but also actual uh, ability to take staircases and elevators um, between the lower level up to the Skyway to try to convince Minnesotans that they need to be out on the street walking around on days where it's, it's barely zero degrees. Um, I think that rather than trying to change that mindset, let's uh, figure out how to work with the Skyways and help drive the traffic throughout the entire property. Well, we'll see if it works. If it does, tens of thousands of the new denizens of downtown Minneapolis, a couple hundred thousand office workers who come in every day, and tourists from the suburbs and every place else will finally have the same experience as their forebears who encountered on the streets of Minneapolis various versions of the homeless Jesus on a park bench, even as the eyes of Father Lewis Hennepin rove down the avenue while downtown keeps moving on. Bill Werner on the Minnesota News Network. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The brand new state-of-the-art Athletes Village on the U of M campus is set to open next month. The $166 million facility will house most of the athletic department's 25 varsity sports. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has a preview. Scott, I sat down with Gopher Athletic Director Mark Coyle, who toured the almost completed facility last week. He says this will be an absolute game changer for U of M athletics. It's the first time I've been in the building in probably six weeks, and uh, it, it definitely has the wow factor, I think. I think when, uh, when it's up and running, I think people are going to realize how functional the building is. And as I've talked about before, Mike, it's going to impact all 750 student-athletes, all 25 programs. So we're really excited about it. What stood out to you? Was there some things that or were there some things that were uh, that kind of blew you away when you, when you, when you, when you uh, saw it? This will sound like a really simple answer. It's very functional. And, and what I mean by that, Mike, is, you know, you walk in on the first floor. It's our training table for all of our student athletes, uh, which is going to be awesome. And then you go to the second and third floors, the basketball performance centers for the men's teams, the women's teams, weight rooms, athletic medicine area. And then you go to the fourth and fifth floors, which is our Gopher Life Skills Program and our academic center. So I, I think the building, when you get in there, it's going to be very functional. The new indoor football facility, the new football performance center as well, just very functional. And I think people will be able to take advantage of it. And it'll make us more efficient and better use of our time. Uh, I think the uh, the headliner certainly is the football facility. Uh, it is huge when you walk in that thing. It's uh, bigger than many NFL uh, indoor facilities. Um, give us an idea of what uh, head coach P.J. Fleck and that program is getting with, with this new uh, piece of this puzzle. 
Well, you know, first off, uh, I like how you use the term puzzle because you've heard me talk a lot, Mike, about this is another piece in the puzzle to help us build a successful football program long term. And I can tell you the very first time we sat down with Coach Fleck and interviewed him for this job in Chicago, we laid out plans for Athletes Village, and he saw that and he was excited about that. And this new indoor facility, you can take our current facility and put it inside this facility. Uh, So it's going to give us a great atmosphere to practice. And then the performance center, a weight room that's going to be much, much bigger, athletic medicine, athletic training training table all going to be much bigger and better than what we currently have. And, and I think you're seeing the results with some of the success we've had with recruiting. You know, I think people have noticed that we have invested in our programs now. It shows our commitment and people are being committed back to us. And then basketball, uh, two practice gyms, one for the men, one for the women, new locker rooms. Uh, give us a little virtual tour on the air, if you would, of, of that. Well, you know, a phenomenal facility. As you, as you mentioned, it's actually two different courts, uh, one for the men's program, one for the women's program. They're built identical, the locker room space, the film room, the team lounge, uh, the academic areas for the student-athletes, you know, and, and I had a chance, you know, when I walked through it uh, earlier in the week, uh, just blown away. You know, I've been very fortunate to work at Syracuse, to work at the University of Kentucky, at Boise State. We had a phenomenal basketball practice facility, and, and this is much better than all those, and, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, those are some big-time basketball programs, but it's just a phenomenal facility. I know Coach Stallings is very excited. I know Coach Patino is very excited. And again, I think you'll see the impact on it, not only making us more efficient, but also in recruiting because it shows the commitment we put into our facilities and for our student-athletes. And lastly, nutrition is obviously big for all student-athletes. I think a lot of people think football, but it's true for everyone, and all student-athletes will get to take part in, in the Nutrition Center. Yeah, we, we will have, uh, you know, the Nutrition Center, which is on the first floor. You know, it's going to be open to all students on campus, not only student-athletes for breakfast and lunch, uh, and then at dinner time, we'll serve our student-athletes meals. And you're exactly right, Mike. You know, the diet and nutrition that we feed all of our student-athletes, uh, that seems to be the latest and greatest thing that people are focusing on. We have full-time nutritionists on staff that work with all of our student-athletes, so we'll have a chance to kind of hand-pick our menus, hand-pick the food that we'll be feeding our student-athletes to make sure we help them optimize uh, what they're doing from a health standpoint to prepare them to compete at a high level. That's Gopher Athletic Director Mark Coyle on Minnesota Matters on MNN. That's going to do it for this week. On behalf of all of us here, happy holidays holidays. Thanks for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.